everyone. This is Jan Kabili with another episode of The Fix, the podcast that's all about Photoshop, Lightroom, and processing your photos. Tonight, I have someone very special to talk with, David Biedney. David is an old pro at Photoshop. He is one of the first and one of the best. David, how are you tonight? I'm not bad. How are you, Jan? I'm great. Excellent. So, David, I know a little secret about you. Oh, there are a few of those around. (laughs) Well, this one is one that I know our Photoshop listeners are going to be really excited to hear. And that is, I heard that you wrote the first Photoshop book ever. Is that true? I am guilty as charged. Tell us. Wow, that was another lifetime. Um, And actually, it started with Bantam Books wanting me to write a book about freehand, all this freehand at the time. And they had gotten in touch with me, and um, they wanted me to write this book about freehand. And and I said to them, you know, that'd be kind of cool and everything, but there's this piece of software I've got that no one knows about yet. And this was at a time when Adobe didn't know about it yet. No one knew. I was directly in touch with John Knoll, one of the two brothers who wrote Photoshop, and I said, I've got this crazy piece of software. Uh, I, you really want me to do a book about this instead? And they're like, what? what? What are you even talking about? So I had the editor and the publisher of Bantam come up to my office, and I proceeded to show them a version of Photoshop that I think it was 0.5-something, this was a, a good solid year before the product was even acquired by Adobe. And um, I did this demo, and I did some retouching stuff that just blew their minds. And they're like, whoa, what? Where did this come from? And I'm like, well, it's not out yet, but um, I think this is going to be a big deal. And, Jen, I have to tell you, people forget that Photoshop was not the first product that could do photo retouching on microcomputers. What else was there? That's before my time. Well, back in the 80s, we actually, the very first program was Silicon Beach's Digital Darkroom. It was a grayscale-only program, ran on a Mac 2, but it was a photo retouching package. It was really designed to be that. Um, after that, the huge graphics conglomerate, Letraset, an English company, they had gotten deeply into software, and they had a pair of products Image Studio and Color Studio. Image Studio was grayscale. Color Studio was color. And those two products were written by two fellows by the name of Mark Zimmer and Tom Hedges, who became very famous later on for doing Painter. Um, before they did Painter, they for the original Macintosh, like I'm talking about pre-Mac 2 now, they had done the first sound digitizer for the Mac called SoundCap. It was the very first thing you could actually take and record audio into the Mac with. Um, and that's kind of when I connected with them because I was the technical editor at Mac User Magazine. This was, this oh, goes, I didn't know that. That's cool. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, huh, my, my history in this field is kind of long and really embedded into the graphics community. Um, so uh, 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 these two guys had written this piece of software called Image Studio, which was a grayscale retouching tool. I mean, just very comprehensive. And then they expanded it to color with the Mac 2, and it was called Color Studio. And Color Studio 
was before Photoshop existed, Color Studio was the color retouching program to beat. It was the one. And it could do things that to this day Photoshop can't do. At a time when um, it was kind of a more wide and open field, there weren't the really well-entrenched players that we see now, like Adobe. Um, everything was sort of up in the air, and things were up for grabs. So uh, Photoshop was basically an attempt to then go up against Letcher set that the Enol brothers originally, I mean, the really sad part of the story is that they were shopping the program around to a variety of publishers in Silicon Valley who were all turning them down. Oh, what a mistake. What it just it, Talk about an absolute snafu, right? How many of those people probably lost their jobs later on? Um, and in fact, at one point, and this is the thing, was that John had taken Photoshop to a company that was well-known in the Mac industry at the time, and I was a consultant of theirs, and they said, you know, there's this guy came up with this program, and it's, we want to understand how it's different from programs like Pixel Paint, which at that time was the premier, eight, it was an 8-bit color painting package for the Mac that this one company, Super Mac was the name of the company, actually, um, that old Mac people remember because they had monitors, and Super Mac was the first company to publish Premiere before Adobe had acquired. It's just a long... Actually, Adobe licensed Premiere to Supermac, and they had this, um, the video spigot. This was the first video digitizer for the Mac. Don't get me started on this, because I'm the institutional memory of all of this. I you remember, remember what, all this. It's amazing. I can't remember what happened oh, last week. Man. <laughs> well, I forget what happened last week, too, but this stuff, well, I, I was there for the whole thing. So make a long story short, and it's a very long story. Um I had this copy of Photoshop that they FedExed me, Super Mac FedExed me a, a floppy diskette. A floppy diskette. Um, 800 kilobyte, uh, maybe it was a 1.3 or whatever, 1.4 uh, 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 diskette. And we were talking about like nothing. Today, you know, uh, our, our flash drives are bigger than the biggest hard drives we've had. I mean, we're talking about the days when a 60 megabyte hard drive the Super Mac data frame was a big deal, and it was really expensive. 60 megabytes, okay? Um, so I get this disk FedEx to me on a Friday afternoon, I'll never forget, and I plug it into my trusty old Mac 2, and I load this thing up, and, and again, I had been using up to that point, if, if it did graphics on a Mac, I had it. Whether it was released or not, I had it. Um, in New York, I was kind of like the go-to guy for graphics on the Mac, and I had, at that point, had been at Mac User Magazine as one of the founding editors um, and had been involved in the industry in a way that, again, I kind of knew where everybody was. And in New York, if you were interested in graphics, and, and the Mac, you ultimately ended up in my office. And, and I ended up meeting a lot of really cool people and, and forging friendships that, re in some cases, remain to this day. In other cases, some of those people are now sadly deceased. Um, but anyway... Long story short, I get this floppy disk loaded on my Mac 2, and I start messing around with it. And remember, I had seen everything, and including being intricately involved with Color Studio and Image Studio, which were the go-to programs for doing retouching. And I'm messing around with Photoshop. And by the time I looked up from my monitor, it was Saturday. <laughs> I had sp completely spaced out, spent all night in Photoshop. And I have to tell you, it was at a time when a lot of the tools weren't there, but the calculations menu was there. And 
the menu item, and the calculations thing made my head explode. That was where I realized I was dealing with something that was so radically different and much more powerful than anything that existed. Even with Color Studio, that did things that, again, to this day, still haven't really been duplicated. Um, but Photoshop had this elegance to it. It had performance. It could take 24-bit images and dither them down to 8-bit custom palettes like nothing else could, which... At the time, I had this company in New York City called Incredible Interactivity, and we were doing this very high-end interactive media stuff using HyperCard and VideoWorks, which later became Director. Um, this, again, just a very early time in the industry, and there weren't set ways of doing things. So if you had 24-bit color graphics, which at the time was unusual, now we take it for granted that everything has 24-bit displays. But at that time... Most machines had 8-bit color displays, so you could do up to 256 colors at a time. And so there was a real technique to taking 24-bit uh, true color graphics and dithering them down to these optimized 256 color palettes, which then became a real issue if you wanted to take those images and, let's say, run them on a Windows machine. Well, that was a slightly different system palette. Or let's say you want to make your images look really good, so now you had to create what were called adaptive palettes. By the way, for people interested in this sort of historical aspect of the industry, you can still find in Photoshop under the mode menu, you'll find index color. Uh, it's one of the color modes. And a lot of people don't use it anymore because, like I said, most of our devices now have either 16 or 24-bit displays, so downsampling graphics much less important now than it was at the time. But you know what I remember um, from Save for Web, uh, that when you wanted to downsample to 8 bits uh, for a, a GIF, for example, yep. you did choose among palettes, and I remember that adaptive palette from back when I was writing the... Um, uh, the hands-on training web books with lynda.com, which I thought was a long time ago because that was the early 2000s. Now I'm finding out what a really long time ago was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, these things kind of bubble up, right? They, 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 they start kind of underground, and then gradually they reach the mainstream. And so nowadays, it's all mainstream. Um, but back at the time, it was really kind of interesting. And because you didn't have, like, Photoshop has become the 2,000-pound gorilla. Um, it you know a product is successful when it enters the lexicon as a verb. So we talk about photoshopping things, um, which, by the way, Adobe's lawyers have always fought against. They don't like when that happens because that, in legal terms, apparently it dilutes the brand. Uh, to me, that doesn't make a ton of sense, but then again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a creative. Ah, but I am. <laughs> well, then you can explain that because I don't this diluting the brand thing. It's just sort of odd because people then, when people associate the name of a product with an action, it just kind of, to me, it means you've really got mind share at that point. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But I think it's something to do with trademark law or patent law. You know, one of those kind of boring subjects, oh, man. <laughs> the things I stayed away from. But anyway, you still haven't told us about the Photoshop book. What was it and when was it published? What was all that? So the Photoshop book, which I co-authored with Bert Monroy, um, who he and I were working very closely in those days. We were kind of inseparable. Um, so we ended up writing this book about this product that didn't have a publisher. And it was about halfway through the process of writing the book, which was my first book I ever wrote, first book Bert ever contributed to. Um, in the middle of doing this, Adobe announced they had acquired the product, at which 
I have to, here's the thing, I'm going to say this for the record, I'm going to take credit for that. Um, because one, and John Noel and I at that point were talking a lot on the phone. We were just like mind-melting with, with each other. You know, there's a bunch of stuff in Photoshop. I can point to certain features in Photoshop and say to you that my DNA is in there, still to this day. Um, like weird little things. So uh, every time you hold down the caps lock key and you get a crosshairs, that's me. I was telling Adobe, we need precision. I tell John, we need precision. And actually, Adobe fought that one, which I thought was like weird. Like, no, we need precision here. Anyway, um, so what ended up happening was John Nola and I were on the phone one night, and he had been getting very frustrated going around to different Silicon Valley, Valley publishers, and they were like saying to him, nah, it's too niche The Barney Scan people, there was a hardware company that had the slide scanner called the Barney Scan. They licensed the software and bundled it with their scanner, and I think they sold like 800 of those. So all of a sudden now people had, and it was called, the product was called Barney Scan XP. Um, and uh, like 800 people had access to it all of a sudden, and people were going insane because it's like, whoa, this is completely radically different. So John was getting very frustrated. We're on the phone one night talking, and he's like, hey, David, you want to go into business with me and we can publish this thing? And I'll never forget, Jan, I said to him, John, that's a terrible idea. No. <laughs> no I did. And I, you know, I said to him, was, I said, do you want to be doing tech support for half-awake drunk users at 3 in the morning? I'm like, I, I don't want to do that, do you? He's like, well, you got a good point there. And I said to him, because I knew Geshki and Warnock really well, I had dealt with both of them personally from the beginning of my days at Mac user. Um, I just recently was telling somebody, I used to call Adobe up, and this was at a time when I would get Geshki on the phone, one of the two co-founders, and we talked for hours. I mean, the guy was really nice, he's brilliant. Um, and I got to know John Warnock as well. Um, and in fact, Warnock ended up writing the introduction to that first book. It was the official Adobe Photoshop handbook. Um, that was the title of it. So anyway, um, I said to John, you know, you, you should go talk to Adobe. And he was actually reticent. He, had, he was a little reticent about that. He's like, well, Adobe, like that, really, you think? And I'm like, they're a graphics company, man. I, I, I think it makes sense. Here are a couple of names. I gave him um, Fred. I'm going to space on his last name right now. But Fred was like the acquisitions guy at Adobe. I knew Russell Brown. I mentioned Russell. I'm like, get, get this in front of Russell. He'll go nuts for this thing. Because, um, again, I knew these guys because I had been dealing with Adobe from you know, back in the 80s. Um, so anyway, John called them up, got the interview over there, took it in, showed it to, uh, 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 to, to uh, Russell. And I believe it was Russell who told uh, Warnock, you grab, don't let the guy leave, grab this thing. Um, by the way, I've never received any recognition for that, but that is actually what happened. Oh, that's uh, really good. Well, that's a true story. You're, you're very modest, and it is a great story. And, you know, I hope that I, – I wish you would write that down so that we don't forget it. I think a lot of people just – you know, they come into the world thinking that companies like Adobe and uh, products like Photoshop were just always there. And it wasn't that very long ago. No, um, they it, weren't. No, they weren't. Well, I'll tell you something, and I haven't announced this or anything. But I've been toying around for a while with doing a podcast series, which would be an oral history of creative technologies in the digital era, and basically go and find all of these people who, in many cases, time has forgotten. Um, 
like, and in fact, I first thought about this a while ago, and I had gotten in touch with this guy, Charlie Jackson, who was the founder of Silicon Beach Software, the, that, that digital darkroom company. Um, and, I, and, and they had, his company had developed a product called Future Splash Animator, which he then sold to uh, Macromedia, which became Flash. Wow. Um, and when, when Flash started to sort of falter in the, in the mobile industry, I called up uh, uh, Charlie and I said, you know, I'm thinking of doing this show, and I'd love to have you as my first guest to talk about the original agenda and motivation and impetus behind doing what became Flash so we can understand, like, why is it failing in certain places like the mobile market? Um, so there's kind of this deep, you know, we've got sort of the surface layer of history that people know about. But there's this underlying layer of reality where the real stories are. And some of those stories, by the way, Jan, cannot be told. All right? There, there are some people... Of course not. Told, All the secrets. Oh, man. Yeah, it would get ugly. But uh, there are, I have a long list of people who really are, in many ways, kind of the brain trust of computer graphics, 3D, multimedia, audio, which is my, my big love before I ever got into Photoshop, uh, was audio. Uh, before I ever got into, into computer stuff, I was an audio geek. And this goes back into the 70s, and that tied me into the Apple II. Uh, and so, like, my first Apple machine was an Apple II. It wasn't even a Mac. I've been doing this for a long time. Well, a long, strange trip it's been, right? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Now, the thing about you that's so cool is you're not just like all stuck in the past. You are constantly trying out new things. I know you were telling me that lately you've been looking at some other applications. Oh, um, what's caught yeah. your eye lately? Oh, where to even begin? Well, for Photoshop people, uh, specifically who are Mac users, probably the most significant product release in the last five or six years is a product called Affinity Photo. This is something that is so incredibly compelling, and I've just really been getting my teeth into the thing, but it basically is the first product I've seen that could potentially give Photoshop a real run for the money. It can do a bunch of the stuff that Photoshop does and that people use Photoshop to do. It can do some stuff that Photoshop can do with some knowledge. It can do the stuff a lot easier. Um, it's got some features that to my knowledge, Photoshop still doesn't have to this day. Oh, really? Like what? Well, we'll, we'll get into that. Well, I'll, let, one example, and, and I have to just qualify this now. When I do Photoshop tonight, I'm going to be demoing in CS6. I am not on the cloud at this point. I'm not on CC. I've been resisting. And, and honestly, when the opera, my Mac OS breaks CS6, that's when I'll probably make the transition. Yeah, that's the fourth. That's the the when you hit the wall, and that'll happen. At some point, it probably will happen, and I'll probably do the transition then, unless Affinity Photo has gotten so good that there's sort of no reason to. But and here's the thing about Affinity Photo: fifty dollar perpetual license. So even the price, you, you sort of can't go wrong, and it's incredibly powerful. I mean, it really oh, is yeah. with these and, things. You know, I got a thing in, in my email this week that said they've just released, they're just out of beta, and therefore they're offering 20% off. I don't know if that's for everybody, but I had an email to that effect, and that would make it close to $40. 40 bucks. Yeah. It, it's really a no-brainer. I, I mean, it's the kind of, but it's Mac only, so if you got a Windows machine, it's not going to fly. 
But um, if you're a Mac user and you use Photoshop, you really owe it to yourself to spend the $50 or the $40 it is on special. I think that's for everybody. Um, I could be wrong about that. But I think it behooves anybody who's an imaging person to grab it. What I was going to ask you was, in Photoshop up to CS6, you know, people love to use the shadows highlight uh, control, but it was never implemented as an adjustment layer. It's still not an adjustment layer. It is an affinity photo. It's wow, a non-destructive adjustment layer. That's pretty interesting. Well, you know, it's interesting. In the latest version of Photoshop, they've gone in the other direction, making other adjustments available in the same way that we had to use shadow highlights as a kind of a faux uh, smart filter. Do you know what I'm saying? Where you, where you would make, you would take a layer and you would convert it to smart filters, and yep. then you could put the shadow highlight direct adjustment on there, oh, and it would kind of hang off the bottom of the layer so that even shadow highlights, which is otherwise just a direct adjustment that right. changes pixels, would be available as a non-destructive adjustment. So there is a workaround then, okay. There's been that workaround for a long time, but then they went the other way and made a lot of the other adjustments available in that fashion. So even though you could apply, for example, you can apply levels as an adjustment layer, of course, you can also now apply it as this smart filter hanging off the bottom layer. I thought that was pretty interesting. And I'm not sure of the reason for that or whether a lot of people are going to go that way, but there it is. Something else I noticed in Affinity Photo, and this is something that I've been telling people for years. I, I say to them, you know, because as you know, I'm a masking geek, serious masking geek. Tonight I'm actually going to show something tied into the topic I told you I was going to talk about that sort of demonstrates some of the history in Photoshop. And uh, some of the power in Photoshop that people have com either completely forgotten about or never knew about. Um, but one of the things I always told people over the years I've been teaching, wouldn't it be cool if you could make a selection with any of the selection tools in Photoshop, and then instead of contract and expand, right, you, you, you type in a value, you hit OK, and it will choke or spread the selection accordingly, wouldn't it be cool if you could grab a tolerance slider and move the slider and watch the ex the selection area interactively dynamically change affinity photo has it very interesting it's very cool very interesting. well there are ways in photoshop i don't know have you uh, use the refine edge refine mask actually would be uh, more right. analogous. you can kind of do that with the uh, shift edge slider it's not perfect but you it's can it's not perfect it's kind of like the old option uh, drag in levels to see what the clipping point was um, yes. right so they're 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 hacks but they're not elegant and they're not visually compelling where you, as you grab this tolerance slider with the selection options and, and drag it around, because it turns out Affinity Photo has something very, very close to Refine Edge. It, it's, it's a very close kind of a model feature. But this interactive choke, this sort of dynamic grow and shrink of the selection is beautiful. And okay, you convinced me. I'm going to go for the, the my 40 buck deal. I'm going to check it out because, you know, me. everybody deserves a try, right? <laughs> Well, and when I do the thing I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to, uh, I'll just say that there is in Affinity Photo a command called frequency separation that will then go and do what you have to do manually in Photoshop. It has it built right in because it's such an important technique. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's the perfect segue into you sharing your screen and showing us frequency right. separation. Now, while you're doing that, um, I would just like to say that I'm really honored to have David Badney here. Um, you know, he really is a superstar. And um, 
you know, I love talking to him because he has that wide range of information that so many of us, you know, we just, we, we weren't there at the beginning, so we don't know where things started. And even those of you who started um, photography in the days of film understand how important it is to have the basis to know where things come from. It helps you in what you're doing today. So that's David. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of what's called frequency separation. And the, the core of this idea is that if you look at image data as signal information, we have different frequencies. We have low frequency and high frequency. And by the way, this is very akin to the way we think about things in audio. All right. So in audio, you have low frequencies. That's the base. And people who have bought a stereo in the last decade probably got uh, satellite speakers and a subwoofer, right? So you can take the subwoofer, and the idea with the subwoofer is that the subwoofer can kind of go anywhere in the room. Usually you want to put it, like, close to a wall so the low frequency can bounce off the wall. But the subwoofer frequencies are such that they are not what we call directional. It, it doesn't really matter where you put the subwoofer. You'll hear the bass fill the room. On the other hand, the satellite speakers, where the middle and upper range of frequencies are reproduced, the placement of those is actually really important, and that will change the stereo field dramatically. I bring all of this up, Jan, because in understanding how signal processing works for images, it's useful to have this sort of core understanding of what frequencies are, and it turns out it's a lot easier to sort of understand it if you come at it from the point of view of audio. So let's look at this image for a moment. I'm going to uh, quickly pop over to my channels. And as you well know, I wrote a book called Photoshop Channel Chops with a couple of other authors, including Bert, my old friend, Nathan Moody. Um, that, that's a classic Photoshop Channel Chops. Anybody never heard of it? Go get it. Can you get it? <laughs> Good luck. It's, sort of, it's no. out of print, huh? Yeah, you know, these days, thank goodness, copies are selling at reasonable prices, but at its peak... And this is kind of like nutty. There were copies exchanging hands for five, six, seven, and eight hundred dollars a copy, which was just nuts. So that's kind of that's kind of subsided. Now you can probably find a copy used for maybe twenty, thirty, forty bucks. Um, it's long out of print. But the way that we did the book was to try to make the the information basically perpetually useful. We weren't really focusing on features. We were focusing on real core underlying fundamental ideas. So one of the things that was at the very beginning of that book was the idea that an RGB image consists of red, green, and blue channels, and those channels have certain types of information because of the wavelengths of these colors and the frequencies of them. We know that the blue channel typically contains all sorts of the artifacts, noise artifacts, in this case, uh, 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 the noise artifact of the old digital camera I used for this. If you've scanned film, this is where most of your emulsion shows up in the blue channel. The red tent tends to contain the greatest amount of contrast information in the image. Um, and the green channel is really where most of the detail of the image lives. And really, in order to understand detail, what we have to think about are places where values transition abruptly in a very short amount of space. So, for example, in this particular image, this uh, dummy, this mannequin's chin at the bottom here, where the chin meets the background, we call that a high-frequency edge. The amount of differentiation between the tonality on one side of that's chin versus the other, 
that differentiation is very abrupt and very significant. As compared to, for example, her skin tone, where um, we see much less, there is some tonal variation, but it's over a much larger area. It's a much smoother area of transition of tonal differentiation. So one of the first things that, and I've been teaching this to people with regards to Photoshop for many, many years now, is that, um, for example, if you were wanted to go and sharpen this image, right, chances are you would click on the RGB, you'd go to your sharpen filters, and you have any number of choices here, which, by the way, the way I've typically explained this to people over the years is that sharpen is basically another way of saying destroy the image. Sharpen edges is destroyed only in the most important areas of the image. Sharpen more is destroy it yet more. So these three filters are completely useless. You should never, ever use them, ever. Period. They should be yanked out of the program. They're complete. They're a complete waste of time. I don't think I've ever even looked at what's behind oh, there because I did know that. Well, they don't have any options. Remember, in um, in all software, you you only have a dialogue if you've got your ellipse here. So these don't have any options because they're all just bad. You don't use them. So up until a handful of versions ago, unsharp mask is all we had. Smart sharpen came later on because well. People refuse to learn the techniques of being able to constrain the unsharp mask, which, by the way, this is a term derived from an analog photographic process that originates in the darkroom, because the, you, if you just look at the term unsharp, that doesn't inspire confidence for getting an image sharper. It's like, wait a minute, you know, unsharp mask? What the heck is that? Well, it turns out it's a digital simulation of an analog technique that basically was centered around increasing contrast in areas of high frequency, edges. All right, now, uh, a Smart Sharpen basically is unsharp mask with the ability of constraining where the sharpening is happening. But let me just get away from that for a moment because what I want to show here, and this is a technique that it goes back to Photoshop 1.0, and a lot of people just never learned. I'm going to take the red, uh, excuse me, the green channel of this image, and I'm going to make a duplicate of it into a new channel. All right. So now I've got basically just a duplicate of green. Green is the color component where all of my significant detail lives. And that's really what I want in order to get an edge mask. I want to create a mask for specifically the high frequency edges of this image, for the edges where the detail is. Those are the edges, Jan, where if I increase contrast, which is what sharpening basically is. Sharpening is increasing the contrast of an area along the edges to create the appearance of uh, sharper images. And just to complete a slide now, to understand how old that technique is, go find a museum that's got an original Rembrandt painting. Go get up close, as close as you can get to it, and look at what he was doing in order to get these incredibly sharp edges to things in his imagery. He was basically painting unsharp masking into his images by creating enhanced contrast only on areas of edge detail. It's right, he was, wild. he was just making the dark really dark and the light really light yes. right along the edges. It's true, exactly. I've looked for that. Yeah. So, okay, let's look at the fact that if we've got this duplicate of a green channel, I'm going to go up to a filter, and I'm going to go to a, 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 an item that almost no one ever uses, find edges. Find edges is actually derived from 
robotics. It's called a Sobel Edge Operator. And it's what robots use to figure out where things are in a, a production line, where to be able to grab things. Find edges, and, and this is something that changed a number of versions of Photoshop ago. When you would normally do find edges on an image, it would basically create what I'm about to do by inverting this, okay? So it used to be in, in the first maybe half dozen versions of Photoshop, when you ran a fine edges, it would do this. And then at a certain point when Kai's power tools came out and there was a specific filter in there to do find edges and invert, someone at Adobe thought that was a good idea. And they changed the behavior of Photoshop in a way that is never desirable because the whole point of find edges, as you're seeing here, is we want to create white areas, basically mask areas, for the actual edge detail of the image. Now, as you can see here, Find Edges doesn't have a parameter, doesn't have, doesn't have any controls. So it also highlighted a bunch of stuff that we would normally consider to be um, sort of continuous tone. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to open up the destructive version of my curves tool. And now with this, what I'm going to do is go into my pencil mode uh, most people, when they use curves, they always use the curves mode because this is how you do color corrections, right? Mm -hmm. You do C curves and you do S curves. Well, it turns out that there is this pencil mode that has been in there since Photoshop 1.0. And actually, to this day, if you want to get the key command for curves, it's Command-M. And what that really stands for, that M comes from what curves used to be called in Photoshop 1.0, which was arbitrary map. That's where the command M comes from. It's for map. So it turns out that before Photoshop had a curves control, it only had the pencil. And this would allow you to draw really whacked out, like solarization curves. This is how people would use it. They would draw really crazy things on color imagery. This looks pretty wild. I'm going to hold down my, my option key, Alt on a Windows machine. I'm going to go to my cancel button, which then turns to reset. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to sample along those areas and what, I decide, what I've discovered is I want to take all of these areas that I don't want to have be part of my sharpening, but what's going to end up being my edge mask, I want to take these areas and I want to clamp them down to be black. So I go into my pencil mode. This allows me to draw a line at the bottom here, which is now driving all of those areas that are potentially continuous tone. It's driving them all to black. Now, by the way, while it's doing that, if I were to zoom in, you'd see that there's a very abrupt transition between the white and the black. That's what the smooth button is for. The smooth button is for reintroducing anti-aliasing or graduated values into those edge areas. And now I click on OK. Now what I've got here right now, Jan, is the beginnings of a mask for just the edges of this image. Now it might be a little too fine at this point, which is why we have a filter called Maximum. Maximum, under the other menu, under filters, is designed to take bright areas and accentuate them. Now, this can get really out of control really fast, okay? Whoa. Its own whole, by the way, weird look that God knows there's probably somebody who sells a plug-in that does this for Photoshop. Um, but there it's always been. So let's say I go ahead and do a just a two-pixel maximum. So this is basically, again, blowing out the white areas to make those edges accentuated. Now, at this point, I could spend some time, like, cleaning this mask up. But let me just show you for a moment what happens if I take that mask, 
load as a selection, holding down the the uh, um, the uh, uh, command, command key and clicking on it. Um, and now I'll just go ahead really quickly, hide those edges. And what happens now if I were to take, let's say, my unsharp mask command and apply it, what's going to end up happening, Jan, is that I'm only doing it through that edge mask. So if I crank the values up really high, you can see what's happening. I'm getting the light, I'm getting the sharpening effect, let's say, for example, here in the eyes, but it's not affecting any of the rest of the image. It's only affecting those areas that are indeed edges. So that idea of using find edges to create a mask for the high frequency areas, that's the first step in understanding frequency separation. It's where you're now approaching the image and you're deconstructing it using the actual information that's already there. So what this allows me to do basically is this allows me to do a lot of uh, a sharpening to the edges of things without affecting <clears throat> any of the continuous tone areas because in effect I'm running this sharpening filter through a mask that was created using find edges on the green filter. That's a great explanation. I totally understand that. Once you understand that simple idea of being able to isolate edges, we can actually now graduate to understanding frequency separation. So the frequency separation technique is, let me just ditch this, uh, this mask for a minute, and then we go over to layers. So what we need to do here is we need to create, at the very outset, a couple of duplicates of our background layer that we're going to use to basically break the image up into low frequency and high frequency. And in a moment, you'll see exactly how that works. I'm going to go to this background copy, and I'm going to call this LF for low frequency, so I can reference it easier later on. And now I'm going to call the uh, top layer HF, high frequency. So right now, all I've got are two duplicates of the exact same background layer. I'm going to turn off the visibility icon for that top layer, and I'm going to make that middle low frequency layer currently active, and it's visible with nothing active or visible on top of it. The very first thing I want to do here is I'm going to take and basically annihilate the detail in this image and create, in effect, a more softened series of color regions, and probably the most important filter in Photoshop, besides on Sharp Mask, um, has got to be the Gaussian Blur. This is one that, you know, if people have never used this, you, you've never actually really used Photoshop. Uh, there's so many things this command can do. But what I'm going to do here is now I'm going to basically um, soften this image up. And uh, why am I not seeing it's... Oh, I know why. Because I still have my selection defined. Ah, Command-D, deselect. I still have the, even though I got rid of that alpha channel of the find edges edge mask, it was still active. You know, that's one of the dangers of hiding your selection, <laughs> is it's hard to remember. I, I, I know, I did, and it just happened right there. Here. Okay. Gee, now that looks blurred. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply some blurring to this, and the idea is just to basically create a softened version where a lot of the really obvious detail is kind of gone, but I can still make out what the image is. Turns out, as we get into this, you're going to see that ultimately I'm going to be blurring this a lot more in certain areas. But for right now, in order to create the high frequency area, I need to blur this about, if you've gone to a double digit number of pixels, you've gone too far. So I'm going to, I'm going to just come over here to 9, 9.1. Eh, 
maybe even a little less. I'm just kind of eyeing it. 8.7, that's about right. Okay. Click on OK. So now I've got this blurred version of the image. That's good and fine. I'm going to click on Make Active make active, and turn on the visual icon for this top, what's going to be the high frequency layer. Now this is where things get a little complicated. Because what I need to do is I basically need to do a mathematical operation between these two layers. And in order to make this happen, I have that top layer, what's going to be my high frequency layer, is targeted. So it is the currently selected layer. And now I go to the thing that scares people, which is apply image. Apply image is kind of the friendlier version of calculations. This one is the one that for people, this is kind of like the equivalent of, uh, of math in Photoshop. It just scares them. And there's really no reason for it to, to be that way. Um, but apply image is kind of the easier version of it. And what we've got here now is I've got to go ahead and, and actually, as it turns out, because I had run this before we started the recording, this comes up. Let me actually reset this to the way this normally looks when someone first brings up this dialogue, which is that. Okay, so if you open up, you'd open right. that and go, okay, forget You're it. Like, I don't know. Uh, what the heck is this? <laughs> so it turns out this is exactly pretty much what you'd see. So what we've got here, and again, this is not immediately obvious, so I'll explain this. Um, you've got the result of what's going to be happening is going to fall into this layer. This is the this is the target output layer by default because it's selected. The one called also, high frequency for our non uh, people who aren't watching. Right, We're just listening. Yeah. Right. So this is the high frequency layer currently uh, active, and because it's currently active, it also is half of the equation of what's going to be processed with whatever else I choose and apply image, which is the low frequency layer. So I go to layer and I choose low frequency. Now what I see, I start to see some edges show up in this image here. I'm starting to see, in effect, what, what sort of the beginning of what Find Edges was doing, which is that it's identifying where the edges are. Now, in order for this to really work, I need to plug a couple of numbers into here. First of all, I've got to change the uh, scale to 2. Now, this isn't obvious, but I'll just tell our listeners that the scale factor is a number between 1 and 2. It can't be less than 1, can't be more than 2. In audio terms, this is a normalization command. For right now, all you have to know is that scale should always be 2. Now, offset, this is where things get a little different because I'm going to type into my offset field 128. What this does is it makes the darkest value of the operation exactly 50% gray, which is what I'm seeing here on the screen. I'm seeing basically all of the background has now gone basically 50% gray, and I am seeing values here for where the edges are. So on skin tone on the mannequin, I don't really see anything here. But on edges, those edges pop right out. This is a high-frequency layer. This is basically where the detail lives. Separately from the color areas that are the skin tone. So what I'm going to do here is with um, my low frequency area set to be the other layer. So I'm now right now doing I am subtracting away from the sharp layer, the softer, and I'm offsetting the results by 128 to get a medium gray here. And, and what, what do you okay, mean? Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you what you mean yeah, by yeah, offsetting? Sure. Do you mean actually kind of pushing over a little bit? Is that what offsetting yes, means? Yes, I'm pushing. 
That's what offsetting means. So basically, I'm taking the result of the calculation and I'm pushing it up so the darkest value in this is 128 on a 256 uh, 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 brightness scale, so it's 50% gray. So right now, if I were to evaluate the gray of this background of this layer, this is 50%. Where this is important, Jan, is if I take when I take this layer, which is right now set to the normal blending mode, I go down to my linear light mode. Linear light mode for this high-pass layer will now take the layer and now make it interact appro appropriately with the color softened layer underneath of it. Which, by the way, if I were to turn both those layers off, it basically looks like the image, right? Mm -hmm. Except here what I've done is, is I've got my color field and I've got my details and I've separated the two out which now means that I can do things that are typically the bane of a Photoshop retoucher. So let's say that I want to now, you see this, this uh, kind of like reddish rouge area on the mannequin's cheek. Yes. So right now from a, from a retouching point of view, if I want to get rid of this, and if I think I'm going to start using, for example, the cloning tool to start cloning areas from around these edges into there, I'm going to end up with a terrible set of problems regarding the differentiation of the brightness values of the areas I could potentially clone from, right? This becomes like, because it's so soft and so subtle, this is now a huge problem to get, a, to get rid of. But watch what happens if I choose my low frequency area. So low frequency is about large, uh, sort of soft areas of shading High frequency is about detail. So if I choose my low frequency layer and I target it, if I take my lasso tool and I make sure my feathering is set to something that's more than zero. So I'm going to actually right now set my feathering to 25. And by the way, this is something that I often tell people you should never do. Don't ever feather selections um, if you're making really detailed mask selections. But for what we're about to do now, this is completely appropriate. So now I'm basically saying that when I use my lasso tool to select an area, it's going to automatically feather it with a 25-pixel feather. So watch what happens, Jan, as I select the area on the cheek here. Now remember, I currently I'm looking at the whole image, but I am only going to affect the low-frequency area, which is where the soft areas of color are. Watch what happens if I go to my filter, blur, and Gaussian blur. Look what happens if I start to crank the blur up. Yeah. Look at that. Nice. You don't lose the detail, but you lose that crazy looking red blotch of color. You got it. Softens it. Out. You got it. All right. So now, David, when people talk frequency separation in fashion photography, for example, this is basically what you've showed us so far, what they're doing. They're just doing it with a lot more layers, a lot more times. Is that right? Sure. And, and in fact, what happens is that we're going to now start to do this different amounts to different areas of the image. So like up here at the top of the head here, I've got this lights. This is actually light that's being light and shadow that's coming through these leaves. So if I want this to now be evened out, and this is like with skin retouching, this is constantly what you're dealing with, which is trying to smooth out areas of splotchiness to make them more even and more aesthetically and visually pleasing. If I now go up to, and so I've got yet another feather selection. I go to blur, I go to Gaussian blur, and boom, like magic. Wow. Right, there it goes, it's gone. 
And because I am only affecting the low-frequency color information, all of the detail on the skin is completely intact. It hasn't been touched. Fantastic. So, I see. I get it. This is it. great. That's basically frequency separation. That's the technique. Now, it gets a little more involved, right, as you start to get into deeper retouching issues. So, for example, if I now want to start getting rid of more obvious, like, issues, let's say, for example, um, this stuff right on the mannequin's head right here, where this is clearly like a high-frequency problem right there. Otherwise known as pigeon feathers. Stuck on this. <laughs> yeah, kind of, some kind of bird feather thing. This is a weird mannequin in a garden that some friends of mine I stay with on the West Coast when I'm out there visiting. And I love just shooting in their garden because there's all this weird stuff all over the place. Um, but, for example, here, I might actually start by doing some softening on the low-frequency color area, right? So I could do this, and it's going to start to affect that little pigeon thing on there. But now if I click over to my, um, my high-frequency layer, so now it's selected, right? Make sure nothing is, is, so it's currently active. And I now grab, let's say, my clone tool. Now, I also, when I do this, I want to make sure that when I uh, use the clone tool for this, I want to make sure that it's my current layer that's selected. I don't want to touch any of the other layers because I want to constrain what I'm about to do to only happen to the high-frequency detail. Oh, that's great. Let me just say for those who can't see, yeah. he's up in the options bar for the clone tool, and he's got the sample uh, drop-down menu set to current layer Correct. rather than current layer and below or all layers. Right, right. So now when I start to clone into this area, I clone skin texture but no tonality. Fantastic. So this is how you do real retouching. So you don't, you know, what the rest of us are doing is just using the clone tool on the whole photo without separating, separating out the detail from the color. And you're not going to get as fine a result. Is that correct? No, that's exactly right. Because what's going to happen is you clone, you have to try to clone from close enough where you get the same overall shade and tonality because you're actually at that point trying to clone everything at once. You're trying to fix details, but because you're cloning everything, you're also cloning underlying color. This is yeah. this completely separates color out from detail. Once you learn how to do this, Jan, there's no going back um, because you get used to thinking of the image separated out into these two essentially component layers. Um, so, you know, David, I see the real use case for portraiture. Um, what is it only for portraiture or is it for other things as well that you could do this technique? Anything where you've got splotchy, where you've got color versus detail, which is every product shot in the world. Um, if you're out shooting architecture and you want to, like, remove staining from buildings, from walls, this is a perfect way to get rid of stains. This basically is a way to, ba it's, it, it's a way to essentially rethink how you approach retouching and deconstructing images. Um, in the same way that when you start thinking about channels for deriving masks, Jan, it's kind of the thing where you start to think about imaging in a different way, which basically makes you a better problem solver and saves you time as well. Because let's face it, if I was going to start doing manual cloning on this head up here, like I said, I have to then be concerned if I'm doing all the layers at once, I have to be concerned about shading, which means that I can only clone from certain areas to other areas. Here, I can clone detail from any area to any other area. Wherever I've got good detail, 
I can source that and use it as my clone source. Oh, right. It doesn't matter if you're cloning from her red lips on top of her beige skin. That won't make any difference when Absolutely you're going only on the, on the uh, detail layer. I get it. You got you it. You are a great teacher, David Bedney. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, I hate to cut you off, but we're kind of at the limits of our time. Maybe I can uh, convince you to come uh, back and show us more because I, I can tell you have more. One last thing okay. before I go. One last thing because I mentioned it. <laughs> Affinity Photo, same image, right? Filters, frequency separation, Ugh. boom. It automatically does this for you. And so now basically the program automatically figures it out. And you can even have a lot more control over where the actual edges are. So this product has, and you can see it's blurred over here. Here's your high frequency. Here's your low frequency instantly you don't even have to think about any of the underlying math it's right there but then how do you work on this other do you select a layer or something what do you do well, well, well the same thing you have retouching tools in the same way that you basically um <laughs> we we really don't have time to get into i know we don't so. have time oh man <laughs> all right, all right. you know what we're not going to do it you you got to come back and talk to us about affinity photo when you get it more figured out i'm sure a lot of people would love to really know all the details yeah. Yeah. And, but, I, but I love the fact that think of all the steps that this saves over what you just showed us in Photoshop, where you get to at least get the separation of the fre high frequency and low frequency layers yeah. done automatically. That's really cool. It's huge. Fantastic. I mean, you are a master. And, and I still say the secret is you understand what's under the hood. And those who weren't there or haven't taken the time to explore that are just looking at the surface, at the controls that are given to us for those, you know, because like, you don't know, right? And so you have the little control and you just drag it around. Yeah, yeah. But it's so much better if you get it. It just helps you figure out unanticipated issues. Good point. It does. Yeah, you're not at the mercy of the program. You're in control. I don't ever want to be at the mercy of a program <laughs> or anything for that matter. No, <laughs> Except gravity. Yeah. We're control freaks, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you again, David. It's been such a pleasure um, to talk with you. I really enjoy it every time. And I do hope that uh, the people out there enjoyed the podcast. If you did, I would appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and give us a nice review there and be sure to tune in to be sure to tune in to this week in photo.com slash the fix. Um, to see other episodes. We have terrific guests every week. Um, also at this week in photo.com. We have other podcasts that you can enjoy all about photography. So thanks for joining us to the audience and to David Biedney.